Chapter Three of Sir Nigel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Three, The Yellow Horse of Crooksbury. In those simple times, there was a great wonder and mystery in life. Man walked in fear and solemnity, with heaven very close above his head, and hell below his very feet. God's visible hand was everywhere in the rainbow and the comet, in the thunder and the wind. The devil, too, raged openly upon the earth. He skulked behind the hedgerows in the gloaming. He laughed loudly in the night-time. He clawed the dying sinner, pounced on the unbaptized babe, and twisted the limbs of the epileptic. A foul fiend slunk ever by a man's side, and whispered villainies in his ear, while above him there hovered an angel of grace, who pointed to the steep and narrow track. How could one doubt these things, when Pope and priest and scholar and king were all united in believing them, with no single voice of question in the whole wide world? Every book read, every picture seen, every tale heard from nurse or mother, all taught the same lesson. And as a man travelled through the world, his faith would grow the firmer, for go where he would, there were the endless shrines of the saints, each with its holy relic in the centre, and around it, the tradition of incessant miracles, with stacks of deserted crutches and silver votive hearts to prove them. At every turn he was made to feel how thin was the veil, and how easily rent, which screened him from the awful denizens of the unseen world. Hence the wild announcement of the frightened monk seemed terrible rather than incredible to those who he addressed. The abbot's ruddy face paled for a moment, it is true, but he plucked the crucifix from his desk, and rose valiantly to his feet. "'Lead me to him,' said he. "'Show me the foul fiend who dares to lay his grip upon brethren of the holy house of St. Bernard. Run down to my chaplain, brother. Bid him bring the exorcist with him, and also the blessed box of relics, and the bones of St. James from under the altar. With these, and a contrite and humble heart, we may show front to all the powers of darkness.' but the sacrist was of a more critical turn of mind. He clutched the monk's arm with a grip which left its five purple spots for many a day to come. "'Is this the way to enter the abbot's own chamber, without knock or reverence, or so much as a pax verbiscum?' he said sternly. "'You are wont to be our gentlest novice, of lowly carriage in chapter, devout in psalmody and strict in cloister. Pull your wits together, and answer me straightly.' In what form has the foul fiend appeared, and how has he done this grievous scathe to our brethren? Have you seen him with your own eyes, or do you repeat from hearsay? Speak, man, or you stand on the penance-stool in the chapter-house this very hour." Thus adjured, the frightened monk grew calmer in his bearing, though his white lips and his startled eyes, with the gasping of his breath, told of his inward tremors. "'If it please you, holy father, and you, reverend sacrist, it came about in this way. James the sub-prior, and brother John and I, spent our day, from sext onward, on Hankley, cutting bracken for the cow-houses. We were coming back over the five-vergate field, and the holy sub-prior was telling us a saintly tale from the life of St. Gregory, when there came a sudden sound like a rushing torrent, and the foul fiend sprang over the high wall which skirts the water-meadow, and rushed upon us with the speed of the wind. The lay-brother he struck to the ground, and trampled into the mire. Then, seizing the good sub-prior in his teeth, 
he rushed round the field, swinging him as though he were a fardel of old clothes. Amazed at such a sight, I stood without movement, and had said a credo and three aves, when the devil dropped the sub-prior and sprang upon me. With the help of St. Bernard I clambered over the wall, but not before his teeth had found my leg, and he had torn away the whole back skirt of my gown. As he spoke, he turned and gave corroboration to his story by the hanging ruins of his long trailing garment. "'In what shape, then, did Satan appear?' the abbot demanded. "'As a great yellow horse, holy father, a monster horse with eyes of fire and teeth of a griffin.' "'A yellow horse!' the sacrist glared at the scared monk. "'You foolish brother!' How will you behave when you have indeed to face the King of Terrors himself, if you can be so frightened by the sight of a yellow horse? It is the horse of Franklin Aylward, my father, which has been distrained by us because he owes the Abbey fifty good shillings, and can never hope to pay it. Such a horse, they say, is not to be found betwixt this and the King's stables at Windsor, for his sire was a Spanish destrier, and his dam an Arab mare of the very breed which Saladin, whose soul now reeks in hell, kept for his own use, and even, it has been said, under the shelter of his own tent. I took him in discharge of the debt, and I ordered the varlets, who had halted him, to leave him alone in the water-meadow, for I have heard that the beast has indeed a most evil spirit, and has killed more men than one. It was an ill day for Waverley that you brought such a monster within its bounds, said the abbot. If the sub-prior and brother John be indeed dead, then it would seem that, if the horse be not the devil, he is at least the devil's instrument. Horse or devil, holy father, I heard him shout with joy as he trampled upon brother John, and, had you seen him tossing the sub-prior as a dog shakes a rat, you would perchance have felt even as I did. Come then, cried the abbot, let us see with our own eyes what evil has been done. And the three monks hurried down the stair which led to the cloisters. They had no sooner descended than their more pressing fears were set at rest, for at that very moment, limping, dishevelled, and mud-stained, the two sufferers were being led in amid a crowd of sympathising brethren. Shouts and cries from outside showed, however, that some further drama was in progress, and both abbot and sacrist hastened onward as fast as their dignity of their office would permit, until they had passed the gates and gained the wall of the meadow. Looking over it, a remarkable sight presented itself to their eyes. Fetlock deep in the lush grass there stood a magnificent horse, such a horse as a sculptor or a soldier might thrill to see. His colour was a light chestnut, with mane and tail of a more tawny tint, seventeen hands high, with a barrel and haunches which bespoke tremendous strength, he fined down to the most delicate lines of dainty breed in neck and crest and shoulder. He was, indeed, a glorious sight as he stood there, his beautiful body leaning back from his wide-spread and propped forelegs, his head craned high, his ears erect, his mane bristling, his red nostrils opening and shutting with wrath, and his flashing eyes turning from side to side in haughty menace and defiance. Scattered round, in a respectful circle, six of the abbey lay-servants and foresters, each holding a halter, were creeping toward him. Every now and then, with a beautiful toss and swerve and plunge, the great creature would turn upon one of his would-be captors, and with outstretched head, flying mane and flashing teeth, would chase him, screaming, to the safety of the wall, 
while the others would close swiftly in behind and cast their ropes in the hope of catching neck or leg, but only in their turn to be chased to the nearest refuge. Had two of these ropes settled upon the horse, and had their throwers found some purchase of stump or boulder by which they could hold them, then the man's brain might have won its wanted victory over the swiftness and strength. But the brains were themselves at fault which had imagined that one such rope would serve any purpose save to endanger the thrower. Yet so it was, and what might have been foreseen occurred at that very moment of the arrival of the monks. The horse, having chased one of his enemies to the wall, remained so long snorting his contempt over the coping that the others were able to creep upon him from behind. Several ropes were flung, and one noose settled over the proud crest, and lost itself in the waving mane. In an instant the creature had turned, and the men were flying for their lives, but he who had cast the rope lingered, uncertain what use to make of his own success. That moment of doubt was fatal. With a yell of dismay the man saw the great creature rear above him, then with a crash the forefeet fell upon him, and dashed him to the ground. He rose, screaming, was hurled over once more, and lay a quivering, bleeding heap, while the savage horse, the most cruel and terrible in its anger of all creatures on earth, bit and shook and trampled the writhing body. A loud wail of horror rose from the lines of tonsured heads which skirted the high wall, a wail which suddenly died away into a long, hushed silence, broken at last by a rapturous cry of thanksgiving and of joy. On the road which led to the old dark manor-house upon the side of the hill, a youth had been riding. His mount was a sorry one, a weedy, shambling, long-haired colt, and his patched tunic of faded purple, with stained leather belt, presented no very smart appearance. Yet, in the bearing of the man, in the poise of his head, in his easy graceful carriage, and in the bold glance of his large blue eyes, there was that stamp of distinction and of breed which would have given him a place of his own in any assembly. He was of small stature, but his frame was singularly elegant and graceful. His face, though tanned with the weather, was delicate in features, and most eager and alert in expression. A thick fringe of crisp yellow curls broke from under the dark flat cap which he was wearing, and a short golden beard hid the outline of his strong square chin. One white osprey feather, thrust through a gold brooch in the front of his cap, gave a touch of grace to his sombre garb. This and other points of his attire—the short hanging mantle, the leather-sheathed hunting-knife, the cross-belt which sustained a brazen horn, the soft doe-skin boots and the prick-spurs—would all disclose themselves to an observer. But at the first glance the brown face, set in gold and the dancing light of the quick, reckless, laughing eyes, were the one strong memory left behind. Such was the youth who, cracking his whip joyously, and followed by half a score of dogs, cantered on his rude pony down the Tilford Lane, and thence it was that, with a smile of amused contempt upon his face, he observed the comedy in the field, and the impotent efforts of the servants of Waverley. Suddenly, however, as the comedy turned swiftly to black tragedy, this passive spectator leapt into quick, strenuous life. With a spring he was off his pony, and with another he was over the stone wall and flying swiftly across the field. Looking up from his victim, the great yellow horse saw this other enemy approach, and spurning the prostrate but still writhing body with its heels, dashed at the newcomer. But this time there was no hasty flight, no rapturous pursuit to the wall. 
the little man braced himself straight, flung up his metal-headed whip, and met the horse with a crashing blow upon the head, repeated again and again with every attack. In vain the horse reared and tried to overthrow its enemy with swooping shoulders and pawing hoofs. Cool, swift, and alert, the man sprang swiftly aside from under the very shadow of death, and then again came the swish and thud of the unerring blow from the heavy handle. The horse drew off, glared with wonder and fury at this masterful man, and then trotted round in a circle with mane bristling, tail streaming and ears on end, snorting in its rage and pain. The man, hardly deigning to glance at his fell neighbour, passed on to the wounded forester, raised him in his arms with a strength which could not have been expected in so slight a body, and carried him groaning to the wall, where a dozen hands were outstretched to help him over. Then, at his leisure, the young man also climbed the wall, smiling back with cool contempt at the yellow horse, which had come raging after him once more. As he sprang down, a dozen monks surrounded him to thank him or to praise him, but he would have turned sullenly away without a word, had he not been stopped by Abbot John in person. "'Nay, Squire Loring,' said he, "'if you be a bad friend to our abbey, yet we must needs own that you have played the part of a good Christian this day.' for if there is breath left in our servant's body, it is to you, next to our blessed patron St. Bernard, that we owe it. "'By St. Paul, I owe you no good will, Abbot John,' said the young man. "'The shadow of your abbey has ever fallen across the house of Loring. As to any small deed that I may have done this day, I ask no thanks for it. It is not for you nor for your house that I have done it, but only because it was my pleasure to do so.' The abbot flushed at the bold words, and bit his lip with vexation. It was the sacrist, however, who answered, "'It would be more fitting and more gracious,' said he, "'if you were to speak to the Holy Father Abbot in a manner suited to his high rank, and to the respect which is due to a prince of the church.' The youth turned his bold blue eyes upon the monk, and his sunburned face darkened with anger. "'Were it not for the gown upon your back?' and for your silvering hair, I would answer you in another fashion," said he. You are the lean wolf which growls ever at our door, greedy for the little which hath been left to us. Say and do what you will with me, but, by St. Paul, if I find that Dame Ermintrude is baited by your ravenous pack, I will beat them off with this whip from the little patch which still remains of all the acres of my father's. Have a care, Nigel Loring, have a care, cried the abbot, with finger upraised. Have you no fears of the law of England? A just law, I fear and obey. Have you no respect for holy church? I respect all that is holy in her. I do not respect those who grind the poor, or steal their neighbour's land. Rash man! Many a one has been blighted by her ban for less than you have now said. And yet it is not for us to judge you harshly this day. You are young, and hot words come easily to your lips. How fares the forester? His hurt is grievous, Father Abbot, but he will live, said a brother, looking up from the prostrate form. With a bloodletting and an electuary, I will warrant him sound within a month. Then bear him to the hospital. And now, brother, about this terrible beast who still gazes and snorts at us over the top of the wall, as though his thoughts of holy church were as uncouth as those of Squire Nigel himself. What are we to do with him? Here is Franklin Aylward said one of the brethren. The horse was his, and doubtless he will take it back to his farm. But the stout, 
red-faced farmer shook his head at the proposal. "'Not I, in faith,' said he. "'The beast hath chased me twice round the paddock. It has nigh slain my boy Samkin. He would never be happy till he had ridden it, nor has he ever been happy since. There is not a hind in my employ who will enter his store. He'll fare the day that ever I took the beast from the castle stud at Guildford, where they could do nothing with it, and no rider could be found bold enough to mount it.' When the sacrist here took it for a fifty-shilling debt, he made his own bargain and must abide by it. He comes no more to the Crooksbury farm. "'And he stays no more here,' said the abbot. "'Brother sacrist, you have raised the devil, and it is for you to lay it again.' "'That I will most readily,' cried the sacrist. "'A pittance, master, can stop the fifty shillings from my very own weekly dole, and so the abbey be none the poorer. In the meantime, here is Watt, with his arbalest and a bolt in his girdle. Let him drive it to the head through this cursed creature, for his hide and his hoofs are of more value than his wicked self." A hard brown old woodman, who had been shooting vermin in the abbey groves, stepped forward with a grin of pleasure. After a lifetime of stoats and foxes, this was indeed a noble quarry which was to fall before him. Fitting a bolt on the nut of his taut crossbow, he raised it to his shoulder and levelled it at the fierce, proud, dishevelled head which tossed in savage freedom at the other side of the wall. His finger was crooked on the spring when a blow from a whip struck the bow upward, and the bolt flew harmlessly over the abbey orchard, while the woodman shrank abashed from Nigel Loring's angry eyes. "'Keep your bolts for your weasels,' said he. "'Would you take life from a creature whose only fault is that its spirit is so high that it has met none yet who dare control it? you would slay such a horse as a king might be proud to mount, and all because a country franklin, or a monk, or a monk's varlet, has not the wit nor the hands to master him. The sacrist turned swiftly on the squire. The abbey owes you an offering for this day's work, however rude your words may be, he said. If you think so much of the horse, you may desire to own it. If I am to pay for it, then, with the holy abbot's permission, it is my gift, and I bestow it freely upon you. The abbot, plucked at his subordinate sleeve. "'Bethink you, brother sacrist,' he whispered, "'shall we not have this man's blood upon our heads?' "'His pride is as stubborn as the horse's, holy father,' the sacrist answered, his gaunt face breaking into a malicious smile. "'Man or beast, one will break the other, and the world will be better for it. If you forbid me—nay, nay, brother, you have bought the horse, and you may have the bestowal of it.' Then I give it hide and hoofs and tail and temper to Nigel Loring, and may it be as sweet and as gentle to him as he hath been to the abbot of Waverley. The sacrist spoke aloud amid the tittering of the monks, for the man concerned was out of earshot. At the first words which had shown him the turn which affairs had taken, he had run swiftly to the spot where he had left his pony. From its mouth he removed the bit and the stout bridle which held it. Then, leaving the creature to nibble the grass by the wayside, he sped back whence he came. "'I take your gift, monk,' said he, "'though I know well why it is that you give it. Yet I thank you, for there are two things upon earth for which I have ever yearned, and which my thin purse could never buy. The one is a noble horse, such a horse as my father's son should have betwixt his thighs, and here is the one of all others which I would have chosen, since some small deed is to be done in the winning of him, and some honourable advancement to be gained.' "'How is the horse called?' "'Its name,' said the franklin, "'is Pommers. I warn you, young sir, that none may ride him. 
for many have tried, and the luckiest is he who has only a staved rib to show for it. I thank you for your reed, said Nigel, and now I see that it is indeed a horse which I would journey far to meet. I am your man, Pommers, and you are my horse, and this night you shall own it, or I will never need horse again. My spirit against thine, and God hold thy spirit high, Pommers, so that the greater be the adventure, and the more hope of honour gained. While he spoke, the young squire had climbed on to the top of the wall, and stood there, balanced, the very image of grace and spirit and gallantry, his bridle hanging from one hand, and his whip grasped in the other. With a fierce snort the horse made for him instantly, and his white teeth flashed as he snapped, but again a heavy blow from the loaded whip caused him to swerve, and even at the instant of the swerve, measuring the distance with steady eyes, and bending his supple body for the spring, Nigel bounded into the air and fell with his legs astride the broad back of the yellow horse. For a minute, with neither saddle nor stirrups to help him, and the beast ramping and rearing like a mad thing beneath him, he was hard-pressed to hold his own. His legs were like two bands of steel welded onto the swelling arches of the great horse's ribs, and his left hand was buried deep in the tawny mane. Never had the dull round of the lives of the gentle brethren of Waverley been broken by so fiery a scene springing to right and swooping to left now with its tangled wicked head betwixt its forefeet and now pouring eight feet in the air with scarlet furious nostrils and maddened eyes the yellow horse was a thing of terror and of beauty but the lithe figure on his back bending like a reed in the wind to every movement firm below pliant above with calm inexorable face and eyes which danced and gleamed with the joy of contest still held its masterful place for all that the fiery heart and the iron muscles of the great beast could do. Once a long drone of dismay rose from the monks, as rearing higher and higher, yet a last mad effort sent the creature toppling over backward upon its rider. But, swift and cool, he had writhed from under it, ere it fell, spurned it with its foot as it rolled upon the earth, and then, seizing its mane as it rose, swung himself lightly onto its back once more. Even the grim sacrist could not but join the cheer, as Pommers, amazed to find the rider still upon his back, plunged and curvetted down the field. But the wild horse only swelled into a greater fury. In the sudden gloom of its untamed heart there rose the furious resolve to dash the life from this clinging rider, even if it meant destruction to beast and man. With red blazing eyes it looked round for death. On the three sides the five-vergate field was bounded by a high wall, broken only at one spot by a heavy four-foot wooden gate. But on the fourth side was a low grey building, one of the granges of the abbey, presenting a long flank unbroken by door or window. The horse stretched itself into a gallop, and headed straight for the craggy thirty-foot wall. He would break in red ruin at the base of it if he could, but dash forever the life of this man who claimed mastery over that which had never found its master yet. The great haunches gathered under it, the eager hoofs drummed the grass as faster and still more fast the frantic horse bore himself and his rider toward the wall. Would Nigel spring off? To do so would be to bend his will to that of the beast beneath him. There was a better way than that. Cool and quick and decided, the man swiftly passed both whip and bridle into the left hand which still held the mane. Then, with a right, he slipped his short mantle from his shoulders, and lying forward along the creature's strenuous, rippling back, he cast the flapping cloth over the horse's eyes. 
The result was but too successful, for it nearly brought about the downfall of the rider. When those red eyes, straining for death, were suddenly shrouded in unexpected darkness, the amazed horse propped on its forefeet and came to so dead a stop that Nigel was shot forward on to its neck, and hardly held himself by his hair-entwined hand. Ere he had slid back into position, the moment of danger had passed, for the horse, its purpose all blurred in its mind by this strange thing which had befallen, wheeled round once more, trembling in every fibre, and tossing its petulant head, until at last the mantle had been slipped from its eyes, and the chilling darkness had melted into the homely circle of sunlit grass once more. But what was this new outrage which had been inflicted upon it? What was this defiling bar of iron which had locked hard against its mouth? What were these straps which galled the tossing neck, this band which spanned its chest? In those instants of stillness, ere the mantle had been plucked away, Nigel had lain forward, had slipped the snaffle between the champing teeth, and deftly secured it. Blind, frantic fury surged in the yellow horse's heart once more at this new degradation, this badge of serfdom and infamy. His spirit rose high and menacing at the touch. He loathed this place, these people, all and everything which threatened his freedom. He would have done with them for ever. He would see them no more. Let him away to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the great plains where freedom is, anywhere over the far horizon where he could get away from this defiling bit and the insufferable mastery of man. He turned with a rush, and one magnificent deer-like bound carried him over the four-foot gate. Nigel's hat had flown off, and his yellow curls streamed behind him as he rose and fell in the leap. They were in the water-meadow now, and the rippling stream, twenty feet wide, gleamed in front of them, running down to the main current of the way. The yellow horse gathered his haunches under him, and flew over like an arrow. He took off from behind a boulder, and cleared a furze-bush on the further side. Two stones still mark the leap from hoof-mark to hoof-mark, and they are eleven good paces apart. Under the hanging branch of the great oak-tree on the further side, that Quercus Tilfordiensis Audiensis is still shown as the bound of the abbey's immediate precincts. The great horse passed. He had hoped to sweep off his rider, but Nigel sank low on the heaving back with his face buried in the flying mane. The rough bow rasped him rudely, but never shook his spirit nor his grip. Rearing, plunging, and struggling, Pommers broke through the sapling grove, and was out on the broad stretch of Hankley Down. And now came such a ride as still lingers in the gossip of the lowly country folk, and forms the rude jingle of that old Surrey ballad, now nearly forgotten, save for the refrain, The doe that sped on hindhead, the kestrel on the wind, and Nigel on the yellow horse can leave the world behind. Before them lay a rolling ocean of dark heather, knee-deep, swelling in billow on billow, up to the clear-cut hill before them. Above stretched one unbroken arch of peaceful blue, with a sun which was sinking down towards the Hampshire hills. Through the deep heather, down the gullies, over the watercourses, up the broken slopes, Pommers flew, his great heart bursting with rage, and every fibre quivering at the indignities which he had endured. And still, do what he would, the man clung fast to his heaving sides, and to his flying mane, silent, motionless, inexorable, letting him do what he would, but fixed as fate upon his purpose. Over Hankley Down, through Thursley Marsh, 
with the reeds up to his mud-splashed withers, onward up the long slope of the headland of the hinds, down by the Nutcombe Gorge, slipping, blundering, bounding, but never slackening his fearful speed, on went the great yellow horse. The villagers of Shottermill heard the wild clatter of hoofs, but ere they could swing the oxhide curtains of their cottage doors, horse and rider were lost amid the high bracken of the Hazelmere Valley. On he went, and on, tossing the miles behind his flying hoofs. No marshland could clog him, no hill could hold him back. Up the slope of Lynchmere, and the long ascent of Fernhurst, he thundered on, as on the level. And it was not until he had flown down the incline of Henley Hill, and the grey castle tower of Midhurst rose over the coppice in front, that at last the eager outstretched neck sank a little on the breast, and the breath came quick and fast. Look where he would in woodland and on down, his straining eyes could catch no sight of those plains of freedom which he sought. And yet another outrage! It was bad that this creature should still cling so tight upon his back, but now he would even go to the intolerable length of checking him, and guiding him on the way which he would have him go. There was a sharp pluck at his mouth, and his head was turned north once more. As well go that way as another, but the man was mad indeed if he thought that such a horse as Pommer's was at the end of his spirit or his strength. He would soon show him that he was unconquered, if it strained his sinews and broke his heart to do so. Back then he flew up the long, long ascent. Would he ever get to the end of it? Yet he would not own that he could go no further, while the man still kept his grip. He was white with foam and caked with mud. His eyes were gorged with blood, his mouth open and gasping, his nostrils expanded, his coat stark and reeking. On he flew down the long Sunday hill, until he reached the deep Kingsley Marsh at the bottom. No, it was too much. Flesh and blood could go no further. As he struggled out from the reedy slime, with the heavy black mud still clinging to his fetlocks, he at last eased down with sobbing breath, and slowed the tumultuous gallop to a canter. Oh, crowning infamy! Was there no limit to these degradations? He was no longer even to choose his own pace. Since he had chosen to gallop so far at his own will, he must now gallop farther still at the will of another. A spur struck home on either flank. A stinging whiplash fell across his shoulder. He bounded his own height in the air at the pain and the shame of it. Then, forgetting his weary limbs, forgetting his panting, reeking sides, forgetting everything save this intolerable insult and the burning spirit within, he plunged off once more upon his furious gallop. He was out on the heather slopes again, and heading for Waydown Common. On he flew, and on. But again his brain failed him, and again his limbs trembled beneath him. And yet again he strove to ease his pace, only to be driven onward by the cruel spur and the falling lash. He was blind and giddy with fatigue. He saw no longer where he placed his feet. He cared no longer whither he went but his one mad longing was to get away from this dreadful thing, this torture which clung to him and would not let him go. Through Thursley village he passed, his eyes straining in his agony, his heart bursting within him, and he had won his way to the crest of Thursley Down, still stung forward by stab and blow, when his spirit weakened, his giant strength ebbed out of him, and with one deep sob of agony the yellow horse sank among the heather. So sudden was the fall that Nigel flew forward over his shoulder, and beast and man lay prostrate and gasping, while the last red rim of the sun sank beneath the butzer, and the first stars gleamed in a violet sky. The young squire was the first to recover. 
and kneeling by the panting, overwrought horse, he passed his hand gently over the tangled mane and down the foam-flecked face. The red eye rolled up at him, but it was wonder, not hatred, a prayer and not a threat which he could read in it. As he stroked the reeking muzzle, the horse whinnied gently and thrust his nose into the hollow of his hand. It was enough. It was the end of the contest, the acceptance of new conditions by a chivalrous foe from a chivalrous victor. "'You are my horse, Pommers,' Nigel whispered, and he laid his cheek against the craning head. "'I know you, Pommers, and you know me, and with the help of St. Paul we shall teach some other folk to know us both. Now, let us walk together as far as this moorland pond, for, indeed, I wot not whether it is you or I who need the water most.' And so it was that some belated monks of Waverley, passing homeward from the outer farms, saw a strange sight which they carried on with them, so that it reached that very night the ears of both sacrist and of abbot. For as they passed through Tilford they had seen horse and man walking side by side and head by head up the manor-house lane, and when they had raised their lanterns on the pair it was none other than the young squire himself who was leading home as a shepherd leads a lamb, the fearsome yellow horse of Crooksbury. End of chapter 3